This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 1335 of Horse Tip Daily, your almost everyday morsel of helpful hints, useful facts, and practical techniques for horse folks, brought to you today by the Horse Radio Network Auditors. Greetings, everyone. Coach Jen here, and thanks for tuning in to Horse Tip Daily. Today, I'm going to sit down for a chat with Dr. Marcella and talk about sweet itch. It's that time of year. And today's episode is brought to you by the Horse Radio Network Auditors. Thanks, y'all. If you're not an auditor yet, stop by horsetipdaily.com and click on the auditor banner on the right side of the page. You'll learn about, learn about all the awesome benefits of being a Horse Radio Network Auditor. And now I would like to introduce Dr. Marcella. So I'm, ha- I'm hanging out here this afternoon with Dr. Rosanna Marsala, and she is from the University of Florida. That's the vet school here in the state of Florida. It's the place to go in the state of Florida if you have issues with your horse. And her- an article that I saw on the horse.com caught my eye, and Dr. Marsala had been doing some research into allergies. And one of the things that our horses are allergic to a lot is bug bites, particularly what a lot of us refer to as Swedish. So, Dr. Marcella, thanks for stopping by today. You're very welcome. You're going to help clear up some gray areas for a lot of us horse folks because um, horses get itchy for a lot of reasons, and insect sensitivity is one of the common ones. Is that right? Yes. Uh, In warm climates like Florida, for example, insect allergy is by far the most common cause for allergies, and allergies are the most common cause for itch. So we see a lot of itchy horses. A lot of itchy horses. So what is the most common biting insect that horses become allergic to? Uh, the most common is culicoides, which is what people refer as, you know, mm, sweet itch as a slang term. And it basically are these biting insects, very, very small, that come out typically at sunset. Um, and they are the most common cause of hypersensitivity in horses. And these horses are very easy to identify because they rub their mane and tail. Um, and so they have specific areas where they tend to be itchy. Um, so they're, they have a very typical distribution of, of lesions. So this is very, very common, particularly in areas, you know, after there's been a bit of rain and there's standing water and so on, because culicoides needs standing water in order to thrive. Aha. So like a, like mosquitoes, you're going to find them in areas where you have standing water. Interesting. Yes, so anosium, uh, so uh, which is another term for culicoides, is a, is an insect that doesn't travel long distances. So it stays very close to where there is an area of, of standing water, uh, like mosquitoes. And uh, but differently from mosquitoes, it's also a poor flyer. So it doesn't fly very well against the wind. So the the typical situation for anosium to thrive is an area where basically there is moisture and there is no 
gentle wind, which is north central Florida, for example. You know, yeah, in the summer is, you have this, yeah, hot, muggy days and no breeze and, you know, high humidity and lots of rain. And so nocions are very, very common. So when somebody has a horse that's itchy, he's been scratching his crest for several days now, but the weather has been cool. Why is it that our horses are scratching when we're not seeing any bugs? How does that work out? Well, a variety of reasons. One is that uh, the allergic reaction built against the saliva of this insect triggers a different type of reaction. One is immediate, which is called type 1, and that occurs within 15 to 20 minutes. And then there is a delayed or late phase, which can occur hours after the, the bite. Um, so typically, uh, you know, 12, 24 hours, 48 hours after the, the bite. And this is true for many insect allergies, including, for example, flea allergy in dogs, you know. Uh, and so by the time you go and look, you don't see evidence of a bite, and you may think that your, your animal has some mental problems, but it's not the case. It's that the reaction is a delayed reaction. And then the other thing that frequently happens is that they develop secondary infections. Right, so that even when uh, the 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 bite is stopped, uh, then they if they have a secondary staph infection, that that's enough to keep them itchy, and that's sometimes one of the reasons for why some horses, the really bad ones, may stay symptomatic even after the weather changes, because they have accumulated enough infection, which needs to be treated. So that's going to need to be treated separately from the hypersensitivity itself? Right. So the treatment, in order to be successful, needs to identify the different triggers for itch because itch is multifactorial and additive. Rarely you're just itchy for one reason. Typically you're itchy for multiple reasons and there is a threshold. And so you need to identify as a clinician where the threshold is and what the important factors are. And most of the time, in order to be successful, uh, it's necessary to address the initial trigger, which in this case, let's say, is the insect bite, and the secondary consequences to this, which is typically the bacterial infection. If you do one without the other, typically you're not successful. So let's say if I just put fly spray, but this horse already has a, a staph infection, just applying the, pl the fly spray and preventing new bites is not enough to bring him below a threshold. Or if I just treat the infection, but I, uh, I allow additional bites, that's not enough. So most of the time it's necessary to do multiple things in order to make them uh, comfortable. So how, as a horse owner, how am I going to recognize the difference between a horse that has hypersensitivity and he's itching versus a horse that has hypersensitivity, he's itching, but he's also got a separate infection? Is there something visually that a horse owner could see or is that something you need to test for? There's some clues, okay? So typically, if you have scabby skin, that's a sign of infection. So when people, let's say, you start massaging the mane of your horse and you see little uh, scabs and, you know, that you can pull with your fingernails and, you know, flaky skin, dandruff-looking skin, that's infection, okay? Ew. So. 
Okay, so that's basically very, very common. You can see in the main area, but sometimes they have it in the chest. Sometimes they have it um, on on their belly um, because they're like different species of culicoides and different species have preferred feeding sites. Some they go on the ventral midline, so on their belly in the center, you have all those scabs in the center. Um, sometimes they go on their legs, and so they have what people refer as scratches. Um, and so, but every time you see little scabs and uh, dandruff on, on the skin, it's because there is a staph infection. So that's a quick easy thing for owners to realize that it's okay, there's something more to it. Then, of course, you can do tests, you can do cytology, but those are like visual clues. So if you have flaky skin and or scabs, it's time to see your veterinarian and get serious about fixing the underlying underlying, um, infection, because otherwise all the fly spray in the world is not going to help. That's correct. It's, uh, they, they typically need additional help. And one thing that I guess owners can do while they're waiting to be seen is to uh, go and get some chlorhexidine spray. So I want to say, and this is important, iodine is not a good choice. I know many times people use that. It's a, something from the past. and so. But iodine is a poor choice as an antimicrobial. Uh, it's much better to select either a benzoyl peroxide shampoo or a chlorhexidine shampoo. And that's something very easy that owners can do. As a matter of fact, if they own an allergic do- uh, horse, it's very good for them to have that shampoo available. And they can wet the animal, apply the shampoo directly, wait 10 minutes, and then rinse it. And that in itself is going to kill some Staphylococcus and make it comfortable. So and then, of course, more to- mm-hmm. if, Go ahead. if someone wants to get these types of shampoo, how would one recognize it? Or is that something they should get from their local veterinarian? Or can you buy it over the shelf? So you you will not find them at the feed store, if that's what you're asking. You can find them online. Of course, veterinarians have those, and they have uh, typically like uh, products that have a better residual activity because they're not all created the same. For example, they've done studies at the chloraxidine, for example. You can have 10 different brands of chloraxidine, and then some are better at staying in solution than others and so typically the the products that the veterinarians will have are like you know the, the ones that have been tested and so on but others you can find on I hate to say on the internet you know so you could uh, google you know chloraxidine shampoo for horses and you would have a, a variety of choices now is it owner you may not know which one is the better one but at least you can get started while you're waiting to consult with your with your vet but veterinarians do carry uh this type of antimicrobial shampoos and you will not be able to find them uh, over the counter in the average feed store so that's something if you're a little bit unsure at the very least consult your veterinarian and get a brand name that you could buy over the counter would be a really smart solution there. Absolutely. And then the other thing that I'd like to say is that uh, the, the pH and the, uh, of uh, horses 
skin is different from the one for human skin. And the same is true for dogs. So that is why it's important not to use a human product. Um, so it's hard, it's strange as it sounds, but the human products are harsher. Really? Uh, because, yes, because human skin is, is thicker, it's actually greasier. I know it makes no sense to us how that could be. But, for example, if I use a benzoyl peroxide shampoo, just to make a name, um, the human products are like 10%. 5% is what they call sensitive skin. But if I were to put that on a dog, I would irritate the skin. Same is for a horse. Because um, animals need something like 2.5%. So they need a much uh, milder product. So I think it's very important for people to consult with their vet and get that knowledge rather than to assume that, oh, if it's good for people, it's going to be good for my pet. Because it's not... Typically, is not the case. Well, that's enlightening. Good to know. Now I'm going to have to go and call my veterinarian and say, "Okay, where? What's 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 a good chlorohex? And it's chlorohexidine, not Clorox, right? Yes. No, no Clorox. I beg okay. you, no chlorhexidine. <laughs> chlorhexidine. It's different. So yes. stay away from the betadine yes. shampoo and go with a chlorhexidine yes. active ingredient or benzoyl peroxide active ingredient. Yes. Got it. Okay, so I'm, t I'm taking notes here. So we've got that. We've got the horse has got itchy spots and all the classic spots, but I don't have any flaky skin yet, or maybe I do have some flaky skin yet. Step one, periodically shampoo that horse with one of these products. Now, let's say your veterinarian is on vacation for the next 10 days and he can't come out. Um, mm -hmm. How frequent might someone want to do this? Is there such a thing as giving them too many baths with this type of product? Uh, yes, and it depends on the skin, okay? I'll give you an example. So some of these products, like benzoyl, is very drying. So if I am starting with a crusty, greasy horse, no problem. I could do this maybe every third day, every other day. But if the skin is already dry, then once a week, because if I do it more often, then it's too much. And you will know because once you are done with the shampoo, the, the horse is going to be more itchy and the skin is going to be even more flaky, so more dry. And so the thing to do that at that point would be to use some conditioner. And the way you can do conditioner, you can either get some oatmeal product, you know, there are many uh, option available, options available, and uh, or maybe even do uh, like a homemade uh, conditioner having some uh, baby oil or some form of, you know, humectant uh, or moisturizer as a final rinse. Because basically dry skin is itchy. We all know that, right? So if you're drying the skin too much, that, you know, you make it worse than what it is. So it really depends on the condition of the skin. If people don't know, I would say once a week. Okay, so once a week is, mm -hmm. is a ballpark, plus or minus, depending yes. upon how dry your horse's skin. That makes sense, though. Uh, our, our pony, who tends to be sensitive to bug bites, has naturally dry skin. He's just dry-skinned all the time. So we would have to be very careful not to do it too often again. And that's, that's a good, good to note because it would never have occurred to me that, okay, I gave him a, I gave him a shampoo with a horse specific 
chlorhexidine shampoo, but golly, now he's itchier. It would never have occurred to me that, oh, maybe I'm doing this too much. So good to know. Now, one final ingredient in this whole thing is trying to... I'd like to to add one more thing, if you allow me. For one, for your pony, you know, to use a oatmeal conditioner afterwards. And then importantly, I would like to for people to know, in humans as well as in animals, allergic skin is drier than normal skin. So that is why, for example, in people, you have to be very careful what kind of detergent you use, what kind of soap, what kind of fabric, and so on. Same is true for animals. So if your pony is prone to allergies, he is more likely to overreact to uh, things, you know, from the spray to the shampoo. So, so it's very important to always use like hypoallergenic products. So this is kind of like a general rule. Good to know. See, again, okay. just because my horse had an insect hypersensitivity, it would not have occurred to me that he's likely to be more sensitive to other things. So now I'm going to have to take all that smelly shampoo and set it aside for the horses who don't have sensitivities and get some nice hypoallergenic stuff for Scooter. Now, one more ingredient to this whole puzzle is, okay, the horse is hypersensitive to these bugs. How can we help discourage those bugs from biting them to begin with? Well, so a couple of things. Uh, For one, repellent, and I like to point out that uh, there are several products out there that call themselves repellent, but they're not, okay? And unfortunately, for uh, the average owner, how would they know the difference? And that's, once again, they need to get that information from their their vet. So I'll, I'll make it very simple. Most of the products out there are not strong enough to be repellent. They are insecticide, but not repellent. What's the difference? If I, an insecticide, it means that if a fly is on the horse and I soak that fly in the spray, it dies. That's an insecticide, so I kill it. But an allergic horse needs more. It needs from that fly, for that fly not to land on the horse in the first place. So you need a repellent. In order to be a repellent, you need to have some characteristics, particularly to be a long-lasting repellent because many products can be uh, repellent for a very short period of time, so it basically becomes clinically relevant. I'll make an example. Clinically relevant would be something like, uh, for, the, for the life in Florida, it would be, for example, citronella. So, yes, it is a repellent in a sense, but unless you want to be there and spend the rest of your day spraying the source all the time, it may not be strong enough to make a dent in preventing bites. Okay, so same is true if I use some something that is very low percentage or pyrethrin or permethrin. It's an insecticide. It's not a repellent. And this is where I see a lot of frustration in horse owners because they're doing what they think is the best. They are applying the fly spray. They think that they're using a repellent, but they're not. So in order to be a repellent, you want something like a 1% per metron or a synthetic derivative. So options, I, I, I hate to mention names, but just to help, so good options would be like Tritec or Endure. Those type of products are actually effective repellent, but they need to be used more often than what it says on the bottle in a place like Florida. Hmm? 
because with the the moisture, the rain, the sweat, and so on, they will not last the two weeks or three weeks that it says on the bottle. No, we need them not. more often. <laughs> right, right. So. So, I mean, everything, again, this is an answer biased by the fact that I practice in Florida. I'm sure there are other parts of the country in which that could be sufficient. But in a challenging place like Florida, you need to go for the the stronger options and apply it generously every day. If people want to go botanical, neem oil is an effective repellent. It's a repellent for mosquitoes, it's a repellent for noceums. The other thing that helps is uh, management issues. So these insects are most active at night from sunset to sunrise. So in an ideal world, which may not be feasible for most owners, the horse should be inside in front of a fan at night. Typically in Florida, it's the opposite. People put the horses out at night, right? Because it's cooler. But that's also, so, right. But if they do that, then that's the time that they really need to load up on the fly spray because that's the feeding time for the noceums, right? So if they cannot stay inside in front of a fan, because again, noceum is poor flyers. So if the horse is parked in front of a fan, it's not getting the bites. Uh, so if they are not inside, then they need to be sprayed at the time that they are turned out. Um, so that's one thing. Then the allergic horse should have the paddock the farthest away from standing water. So that if there are multiple options on the farm, the allergic one, the farthest away from any body of standing water. So these are like little things that can be done to minimize the bites. Well, that's that's practical and and very very useful. The I didn't know the difference. I knew there was a difference between an insecticide and a repellent, but I only knew that, yes. that there was a difference because one re- label says one and one label says the other, and some labels say both. But apparently, you you need to pay close attention to the repellent part. Yes, read the read the ingredients. So besides the name, because unfortunately there is not as, as strict of a control on what what can be written on the bottle, but I encourage owners to read what there is. If it's something like 0.1 pyreter and 0.1% per meter, and that's okay for the average horse. So it's not okay for the allergic, it's not sufficient for the allergic horse. So I think there's a difference. One thing is how to do some general control of flies, you know, and that's okay. But if you own an allergic one, uh, you need to be above and beyond that. That's true for horses, true for dogs, and so on. So it's a different level of, of approach. And then one more suggestion that I found very helpful, and I want to say I have zero uh, stock or financial interest in any of these things that I am suggesting, but I can tell you out of my own experience, there is a machine, it's called Mosquito Magnet, that people can buy online, and you can put different attractants in it, and uh, you can basically attract mosquitoes or noceums and this and that. And if you are in an area that is absolutely loaded with it, I live on a river, okay? Oh, so, my. Uh, it, <laughs> 
so okay so it's and with the you know and then the river floods and so there is wetland and I, I let you imagine what the summer looks like so um if you have these machines and you can have the cordless ones and position them close to the area that you want to clear so that they kind of the insects will go toward the machine rather than feeding on your horses uh, then you can, over time, uh, decrease the amount, the, the, the general burn of insects. So that's one thing that I encourage people to, to consider. And then lastly, one thing that is frequently forgotten is the head. So when, when we spray horses, we are good at spraying the body, right, the neck and the legs and so on, but nobody sprays the head really very much. So, uh, and there are some species of noceums that like to feed on the face and the ears. Matter of fact, I'm sure you've seen those allergic horses where they have all these crusty ears, and that's yeah. noceum allergy as well. So I, I, I'm not in support of fly masks because the fly masks basically trap the moisture, so horses sweat underneath, or if they're turned out, then it rains in the middle of the day, and then it can the skin cannot dry up, stays moist, and then they get infections on. But what I encourage people to do is to get, there are several spot-ons uh, with permethrin, that they can buy at this feed store, and that uh, you can apply this little pipette of concentrated permethrin in the pole area behind the ears so that it doesn't drip in the front, and that will repel the insects from the face and the ears. And so that's a way to kind of like provide uh, um, protection for that area because some some species of culicoides like to target the face. Yes, we've all seen our horses standing around. We've all seen horses somewhere in the country. We're at a horse show or visiting friends or in your own backyard. The horse is standing there and he's got this little swarm of itsy-bitsy, tiny, flea-sized bugs buzzing around his head. Yes. Oh, yes. that's irritating. Well, that's all very yes. useful and very helpful information Dr. Marsala, for folks who have questions and want to follow along with your research, is there a place that they can contact you? Yes, I uh, I am brave as much to give you my email address. <laughs> uh, so Durham is very visual, and so I encourage people to to connect if they have specific questions that they cannot be addressed with their local vet or for their local vet to uh, approach me. And it's my last name M A R S E L L A at U. FL, like University of Florida.edu. That's the best way to, uh, to approach me. And if you can't remember that, because that's a lot of letters to remember while you're driving down the road or cleaning stalls and listening to this show, if yes. you just go to the University of Florida, you'll find her. Because yes. that's how I found her. <laughs> yes, yes, University of Florida. So, uh, you know, I am housed in the small animal department, but I do see horses every Monday. And so if you go under dermatology and Marcella, so I, many times people spell it with a C, but it's an S, and then you'll find me. Very so, good. I've been there for a while. Well, thank you very okay. much, Dr. Marcella. This has been a fascinating uh, discussion, and thanks a lot for spending some time with me today. Well, there you have it. You can find links to today's guest as well as lot more lots more tips at horsetipdaily.com. 
You can have all of your favorite Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go by downloading the free Horse Radio Network app for your iPhone or your Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. It's free and easy to use. And for the less tech-savvy folks in your life, gently take their phone from them, download the app, and show them how to use it. They'll thank you later. This is Coach Jen, and I'll be back soon with another tip. So until then, go ride your horse. The Horse Radio Network and the Horse Radio Network hosts are not responsible for statements made by guests on the Horse Tip Daily. Please use your own judgment when listening to the tips on this show. <laughs>